You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Uh, when you talk about that being and becoming distinction, you know, the eternal God uh, and uh, temporal, transient, mortal humans with our much more limited understanding, we need God to accommodate his mm. uh, wisdom and power to our capacity if mm-hmm. there's to be any successful communication at all. And mm-hmm. perhaps we could say in Genesis 1 that even creating humans in uh, his own image is uh, the first step at creating a, an accommodation bridge so that there can be any kind of communication or connection between God and mm. humans. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Andrew Brown. He's an Old Testament lecturer at Melbourne School of Theology, coming to us all the way from Australia. And we're going to be discussing his new book, Recruiting the Ancients for the Creation Debate. If you're new to this channel, um, thank you. Welcome. Uh, Please make sure you're subscribed. Uh, If you could all give us a like and leave us a comment, we really, really appreciate that. Likewise, if you're listening to us on a podcast, follow us, subscribe, whatever, whatever it is you do. Uh, we really, really appreciate that. Uh, I wanted to have Mon because we've been discussing, uh, and I, I, I discuss this topic from time to time on this channel because it's a perennial one. It's one that's interesting to a lot of people uh, because it's an important question. How do we integrate our interpretation of Genesis with, uh, with modern science? How should we read Genesis? So I've had conversations with my colleague, uh, Dr. John Hilber, about that, which is one of his areas of expertise. What I really appreciate about Dr. Brown's book is he's coming at it from a bit of a different angle, where he's really just trying to look carefully at how have other Christians in the past, um, church fathers, uh, reformers, uh, medieval Christians, how have they wrestled with Genesis? And this is important because a lot of times in the debates, people jump back to the past and say, oh, so-and-so is on our team or so-and-so is on our team. And what he kind of wants to do is just say, hey, let's pause and let's just actually take each of these thinkers seriously on their own terms. What were their questions? How were they reading Genesis? And then in light of all that, maybe then we can think about how that might inform the way we read Genesis today. I think it's really helpful. It's really valuable. If you love just kind of getting into texts and um, engaging with the ways in which Christians of the past have read Genesis 1, uh, you're going to love this book. So I highly encourage it uh, for my nerds out there. Uh, feel free to dig in and and uh, looking forward to you know what you all think about this conversation. I thought it was really helpful. It took a few turns that I wasn't expecting uh, just into kind of practical pastoral uh, thinking about how. Uh, Dr. Brown approaches questions of uh, of faith and, and and how we interpret scripture and a lot of really good stuff here. So hope you enjoy. Uh, please do make sure that you are subscribed and leave us a comment so that uh, we can engage with you. And as always, thank you for watching. And now let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Dr. Brown. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. Really excited today to have another special guest on, Dr. Andrew Brown, uh, coming to us all the way from Australia. So it was quite fun trying to coordinate uh, times together here being in California. Um, But he was gracious enough to find a time and we can sit down. We're going to be discussing his wonderful new book, uh, Recruiting the Ancients for the Creation Debate, which I'm really excited to jump into. I think it's going to be really interesting to a lot of people. Um, Obviously, 
questions about how we should read the opening chapter of the Bible is a, it's perennial. Um, and oftentimes people do make appeals to how people did it in the past. But Dr. Brown's really taking the time to, to sift through and kind of outline how they did it. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about. But first, to just kind of get us started, Dr. Brown, yeah, thanks for being here. And um, would you be willing to share a little bit about your your journey into academic study of the Bible? Kind of what animates you? What got you interested in studying the Bible? Yeah, well, I think I was a fairly academic sort of kid and uh was raised in church as well, in a Baptist church. And an interesting, uh, what would you say, charismatic sort of uh, character came through, actually an American who was in charge of a small Bible college in my state, came to our church as a visiting speaker and kind of put his hand on my shoulder and said, uh, come to Bible college. (laughs) And uh, I was headed for a kind of an, uh, an engineering degree at university, but I was only actually half interested in that. I was already interested in the Bible. And so I took that as my cue and I did a one-year course out of high school. It was a bit of a convoluted path after that, but even in that first year, I discovered that I enjoyed studying the Bible. I did a little comparative study in an assignment, uh, the three versions of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark and Luke, and I just found it really interesting to discover the distinctives there just as an 18-year-old. And so I did some study in the United States, a, a BA in Bible, came back to Australia, did some ministry, did some, well, some more degrees until I quit when I got my PhD at University of Queensland. But um, by then I was already exploring Bible teaching for um, one or two colleges and mm. had been steered in the direction of Old Testament, particularly because there was going to be a more likely shortage of Old Testament instructors here in Australia than New Testament um, in the coming years. Nice. Yeah, more more book to work with too, right? You've got more like two-thirds of the Bible rather. Than... <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I've noticed like your work, not just this book, but prior, you, you have taken quite an interest in history of interpretation, which mm. is not always... Uh, uh, let's say a strong suit for Protestants. Uh, typically, uh, not a shot at Baptists or anything, but Baptists don't typically uh, spend a lot of time with history of interpretation stuff. Is there anything in particular that kind of got you fired up about sort of tracing the threads of how ancient interpreters were reading the same text differently? Yeah, there's a few things. I, I really agree with you about um, a shallow view of the past or or Uh, a very limited knowledge of the past. That's been true of my church tradition, my my Baptist tradition. I think of it that, um, you know, going back to the ancients for uh, my clan is really reading C.S. Lewis, you know, so (laughs) there wasn't much knowledge of (laughs) going very far back. Um, When I did my doctorate, my instructors steered me in the direction of uh, reception history type study, history of interpretation. I think that was partly because they thought I might have been a fundamentalist and they were a bit afraid that I would do something extreme with my doctorate. So I think they steered me into a historical <laughs> angle to create a kind of a buffer of relative safety that they could work with. Um, <laughs> one thing about that that appealed to me was that um, I tend to be a, a kind of a holistic big picture thinker. Um, when I go to these conferences like SBL that's just happened and ETS, mm. um, 
I'm terrible at just going to one stream and sticking with it. I just go all over the place. And so uh, I think a large scale history of interpretation study was something that kind of appealed to my personality as well. And I mm -hmm. thought that my part of the Protestant church needed to know more of that uh, deeper history and very mm -hmm. conscious that we only think what we think. Well, part of the reason we think what we think now is that legacy of thought that makes its way down to us. Mm -hmm. I run into yes. people who couldn't understand that, but I'm quite convinced of it myself. Yes, indeed. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's well said. And why do you think, I mean, it is interesting that even within Christian traditions that aren't really much in touch with the past, uh, many Protestant evangelical traditions, certainly here in the United States, uh, probably true in Australia as well, um, they still, for certain certain theological claims, right, want to go back and do what you call in the book, recruiting the ancients. Mm -hmm. So you, you engage a lot in the book with various voices, many in the evangelical world kind of fighting at each other from different angles, trying to claim different voices in the tradition for their side, so to speak. And so what is it about that that dynamic? Like, why do we feel the need uh, to recruit the ancients mm. <laughs> in the first place? Mm. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And that's something in the course of writing the book that I found myself needing to theorize about a bit more. So there's a section in there on why we lay claim to authority and mm -hmm. how we do that using authoritative figures from the past. And uh, as with so many things, there proved to be a literature about that. So I got to mm -hmm. discover that a bit. I was certainly very conscious that each uh, strand of the Christian church tends to have its authoritative kind of patron saint that it uh, casts back to. So a, a relatively small example in the book was uh, Wesleyan's Methodists going back to John Wesley and his theology. Uh, certainly, you know, Presbyterians and Reformed thinkers were going back to Calvin, Lutherans to Luther, and you could say for Catholic traditions, Aquinas and, and Augustine, people like that. So they have their favourite patron saints, and that's quite understandable. But um, there's this sense that if we can show that our thinking is not a pure novelty, but finds an ancestry in our tradition that that will ground it more and, and give it some uh, kind of robustness in the debate. If we can show mm -hmm. if we haven't just made it up, that thinking goes down deeper. Particularly yeah. in creation discussions, there's an effort to show that, oh, well, this thinking is not just 50 or 100 years old, right. but it, it has deeper roots in the church. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. And, you know, it's interesting, right, that that's not we might want to say that's a new dynamic, but that actually, that's as mm. old as time. I mean, people mm. have been doing that all the time. You know, I think mm. about, you know, uh, Jewish writers trying to show their pagan neighbors that uh, Plato ripped off Moses. And, you know, who's at the who's at the bedrock of the tradition? Who's dependent on whom? And uh, mm. uh, who can we claim on our side? And that, that's that been going on a long time. So I think there's like a fundamental kind of human impulse to mm. to want to do that. Uh, but one of the things you point out, too, is that a lot of these recruitments tend to be very superficial. So there's very limited engagement with a, a thinker. Like if I could pull a quote from Martin Luther or from Augustine or something, and that quote sounds really good. Now that guy is on my team and I can kind of, you know, rally along. So um, 
Yeah, that I think that that's a dynamic that comes out in the book that we we just we need to be really careful of. Um, suggesting really that any of these people are like necessarily on our side or even to think through like, what is that, what does that dynamic even mean? I don't know. You have any thoughts about that? Like, as you were kind of doing this work, uh, did any kind of fresh insights about that dynamic come through for you? Yes. You know, that the worst examples that I found, uh, you know, I, I felt were quite trivializing where, uh, writers would name these three characters that they felt that established were kind of on their side and they'd just wheel out these three names, these four names. Um, the worst example I thought I saw was uh, one writer kind of saying, uh, you might have a couple of examples, but we've got 21, so it's like 21-2, you know. It's, it's not a soccer uh, football scoreboard score anymore. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it, it just seemed very superficial and, and just a point scoring attitude, but it also really underrepresented the degree of difference there is between us and our intellectual context and what it was like once you go back more mm. than a hundred years, 200 years, mm. the context is very different. The motivations for saying things, the debates that are going on, the things that look important, they really change over mm. centuries. And so you might even have a statement that on its surface looks really uh, to resonate with what you would like to say, but given a very different context, mm -hmm. it still might acquire quite a different connotation in that yeah. different context. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. Um, I, I found that even with the term like uh, a term like inerrancy, which gets used a lot in theological circles, you can find mm -hmm. church fathers saying there's no errors in the Bible, mm -hmm. but then you actually have to go and see how do they interpret the Bible and what do they mean by error versus what do you think an error is? Right. And, exactly. um, and, and that's one of the things that I think stuck out for me the most in the book as I worked through the chapters. Um, and, and I mean, some of the writers I'm more familiar with than with others, you know, uh, done quite a bit with Philo and some others, but there were, there were some other, uh, writers that you brought in that I've only dealt with at a cursory level. So it was really instructive to kind of have you walk us through, um, but the, the impression that I get as I, I went through all of this is just that, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, ancient Jewish and Christian uh, reformers, medieval thinkers, they're all almost always uh, coming at it from very different framework, very different questions of the mm -hmm. text than modern Christians. And I think it would be awesome if you could just give our audience maybe maybe a couple examples, a few examples from the book of the way that different thinkers are approaching the text, the way their philosophy, their cosmology, all of that kind of impacts what they're doing with, um, with their interpretation of Genesis 1. Mm. Yeah, maybe two examples would be suitable and, and one plays off the other. When Augustine established his uh, scheme of creation and interpretation of Genesis 1, and beyond in the context of that scheme, uh, he came from a, a quite a sort of a Platonist worldview uh, or was uh, defending, you could say, setting up the viability of biblical creation in a context that respected Platonism greatly. And there was sort of an indirect influence from Oregon there. So when you talk about inerrancy, uh, Oregon 
you could probably establish that he he was a kind of an inheritance in inheritist, but he yeah, in a very different way. But yes, yeah, yeah, I can't even say it, let alone think about it. Um, in a way, his approach was if something was ridiculous taken literally, well, he, he would take that as his signal to take it metaphorically. And some of the things that he thought were ridiculous literally, like days before the sun, would be things that other Christians haven't had any trouble with. So Augustine was dealing with these legacies and needing to establish a kind of a public face for the Christian faith that could stand up in the philosophical arena. And therefore, he had to account for, in a sense, how a, um, a transcendent God, a really transcendent God, the, the God of Platonism, could still be involved with creation enough mm-hmm. to, uh, to create it and not require time because that seemed to impinge on the power of God. And so there's a sort of an abstract quality to Augustine's creation. It's not purely abstract, but there's an abstract or an ontological, a concern with ultimate being underlying Mm. the physical world. That aspect is strong in Augustine. And he establishes a a mode of instantaneous creation with six or seven days that are uh, more a cognitive process, a, a, a mental and idea type of mm-hmm. process that lasts and is quite influential for about a thousand years. But um, around Aquinas' time, you know, Aristotelian thought was coming back in. It was more concrete. It was more concerned with the physical. And there was a trend over two or three centuries to not be too abstract in explaining creation and the world but to deal with the, the materiality of things. And that trend was stronger and stronger until both Luther and Calvin um, find Augustine's instantaneous creation um, really not concrete enough, mm. not really dealing sufficiently with the, the stuffiness of creation mm-hmm. because the mood had really shifted and left that very ontological handling of reality a bit behind. You know, Platonism had and gone to seed a little bit at that stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you see Luther and Calvin uh, looking for a fleshed-out creation and an interpretive method to go along with it that's not too abstract, that's not too mm-hmm. allegorical, but will take the substance of the text in, in a more direct way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And to come back to that Augustine point, it, because I think it's so critical for uh, for us today to grasp is he's coming to Genesis 1 with a big question. Like uh, for him, that would be on par or even greater of a, you know, existential, theological, philosophical question than what Christians today are wrestling with when they think about uh, evolution and Genesis. Like Mm -hmm. this is, and, and so it's good for us to recognize that it's a totally different question, totally different framework. But here you have this influential church thinker, who's trying to think in light of what he knows about the world through philosophy and trying to think along with scripture. And he comes to a very uh, metaphorical reading of the days, the this, this six days, because he's dealing with the this kind of mind-bending paradox of how being brings uh, becoming <laughs> into yeah. existence. And and that's his big question. And I think that's a really, it's really important for us to kind of grapple with that uh, because it's very unlikely that like our, um, 
yeah, when people try to claim like Augustine is on our team or not on our team or whatever, what is it? What what does it mean to be to have Augustine on 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 your team, right? Mm. Like, mm. Um, I, I think that's an interesting, yeah, yeah. In a way, you can't. You're not ready to talk about the implications of Augustine's view until you've got inside the concerns of the time. You know, got to know them somewhat and started to feel why those things matter. So mm -hmm. initially, you might not feel they matter at all, the questions that Augustine's trying to answer. You're not really ready to adopt or take the good stuff out of his view until you start to feel the weight of the issues and why those things matter. Sort of imaginatively stand in those shoes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the process really hasn't begun until you get that far. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you also brought up, uh, you know, some other... Uh, church fathers, we can think about like the Antiochian strand of interpretation, which, uh, you know, they're kind of known simply for pushing back against the fanciful allegorical ways of reading. But when you read them carefully as well, you, you notice that like that they're not doing like historical exegesis in the way that like moderns are trained to do that either. Um, where do where do they go with with Genesis one? Because they, they do seem to to kind of be in line with that more concreteness of wanting to read the text that way, but maybe mm. not quite in a, like in a modern sense mm. either. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think it's still true. You know, coming from my tradition, when you would deal with uh, Antiochian commentary, you would, and, and see how it worked, you would feel more at home there, you know, <laughs> compared to someone like Oregon or Clement of Alexandria you know, which would look sort of so strange and so esoteric. Um, there was a concreteness to the handling of creation uh, at Antioch, and it would lead ultimately to a, a rather literal rendition that would come out in subsequent centuries where it was sort of clearly both literal and, and very... Um, you, you actually do get to a literal flat earth view at one point mm. with... a. Actually, a, a world traveler called Cosmas um, came up with a kind of a, a flat earth view. And, and I think he was really coming out of that tradition uh, of, of a growing concreteness mm. in handling creation. But uh, there's, there's an interesting, like I think of Basil the Great as sort of a halfway point. You know, he was sort of in between Augustine and these Antiochenes and um, he likes the, the substance, the fabric, the materiality of creation. And yet there's still a fair bit of ontology there. Um, uh, one, one example that stands out to me by contrast to Basil from the Antiochene school, according to common categorization, is John Chrysostom, you know, golden mouth, mm -hmm. uh, famed for his preaching. And he has left to us his homilies on Genesis, his sermons, but when you read them, He's not very interested at all in um, the details of material creation. He kind of just kind of moves through them without showing much interest. Basil's interested in, well, you know, how do you get light and where do, how do days operate? And he's interested in the, the physical details in some ways. Uh, Chrysostom is really quite a Christological, mm -hmm. ecclesiological thinker. You know, he really cuts to those things that are the, the core of Christian doctrine. He doesn't, he's not very historically minded and he's not very physically minded. So mm -hmm. um, he's, he's a bit of a unique figure within the Antiochian school, but 
he shows he's probably the easiest one for orthodoxy to accept in mm. that he was so kind of faithfully <laughs> christological mm -hmm. but to the exclusion of any real interest in the world for its own sake i think mm -hmm. yeah no it's interesting yeah it just gives us a more well-rounded picture of you know these different voices mm. um Coming back to Augustine again, so you 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 talk about you know Augustine's uh, concept of divine accommodation, um, mm -hmm. which I think is a really important theological concept. I mean, it's one I bring up with students actually all the time when we're talking about scripture. Um, now he does this especially with any kind of narrative presentation of God, right? It's a way of handling anthropomorphisms, uh, portraits of God that appear human uh, to to make God too human. Um, but we find this this concept of accommodation, of course, strongly in Augustine and then uh, in the Reformers as well. Calvin has a very um, well-developed concept of accommodation. So could you unpack that a little bit for us and how, uh, how it could play into one's thinking about Genesis 1? Yes, the comparison of Augustine and Calvin is quite interesting because with respect to the six days, which was the focus of my doctoral work way back, uh, Augustine felt that the construction of six days of creation in the text was God's accommodation to the need for humans to have, uh, human readers to have human analogies for understanding the ways of God so that, you know, uh, six-day working week with a kind of a Sabbath was an analogy for God's work where time was not really a factor. Mm -hmm. The interesting twist on that that really makes Calvin more comfortable for the conservative reader is that Calvin said, yes, accommodation is at work, but it's playing too fast and loose with the text to say the text is accommodated. It's too near that uh, relatively unconstrained allegorical reading that part of the church advocated. So we need to say that it's actually God's works that are accommodated. Uh, mm -hmm. God not only portrays his creation in six days for our benefit, but actually does it in six days mm -hmm. for our benefit so that we'll understand how it goes. He didn't mm -hmm. need it, but his mm -hmm. very mode of creating was done to uh, for our comprehension and our appreciation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the way sense. God, the way God acts is, yeah, in a way that we could make sense of, right? Yeah. It, it, he could do it a different way, but he does it that way for, uh, okay, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. yeah. So um, I think this is such a vital doctrine, really, uh, the doctrine of God's accommodation. We could imagine how it could be abused, but uh, when you talk about that being and becoming distinction, you know, the eternal God uh, and uh, temporal transient mortal humans, with our much more limited understanding, we need God to accommodate his mm. uh, wisdom and power to our capacity if mm -hmm. there's to be any successful communication at all. And mm -hmm. perhaps we could say in Genesis 1 that even creating humans in uh, his own image is uh, the first step at creating a, an accommodation bridge so that there can be any kind of communication or connection between God and mm. humans. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that the, the beauty and the challenge of accommodation is um, it seems very wise uh, to affirm it as a, as a doctrine and, and necessary. Mm -hmm. Anybody that's wrestled with scripture for long uh, ends up with some kind of, I think, 
concept of divine accommodation. Um, and then the challenge, of course, is there's no, I mean, it's kind of the hermeneutical challenge in general. There's no sort of like rule manual that we have that says, where is divine accommodation occurring and how is it occurring? And uh, it's part of the complexity of <laughs> trying to make sense of the infinite and uh, read scripture well and all that. But um, yeah, I guess I would just say to that, that, um, you know, talking about recruiting the ancients or at least learning from them, you know, if, if you're leading figures, you're leading lights like Augustine and Calvin uh, saw fit to retain accommodation within their theological structure, you know, there aren't many mm. other figures that between us we trust more to be orthodox. It must be essential within the frame of an orthodox theology. Mm. Yeah, no, it's good. It's well said. Um, so uh, obviously we've been talking about, you know, how we get, um, you know, they're, they're, the, the ancients that you uh, survey, they're asking different questions. And so then it kind of, I'm trying to think about how we bridge the gap to what wisdom do we glean from that? Because you make a case, it's it's very similar, I think, your case to just reading scripture well, historically, like part of a good wise reading of scripture is taking it seriously on its own terms and its historical context. So too for any ancient writer, right? Who's commenting on the Bible. We want to understand them first in their historical context. What are they actually saying? So a lot of the book is focused on that, that part of it. Um, but clearly you have interest also in, yeah, maybe not like completely laying out an agenda, but, but gesturing towards, how they might wisely inform the conversation today. Um, there's one one comment you made on page uh, 178. It's about Augustine, where you say, um, Augustine's creation interpretation as a whole system is not viable. That is to say, we don't have the same sort of framework in place that Augustine did when he was doing it. Um, but you say it is still valuable, I italicized, in certain respects. It is a model of a thoroughly worked out interpretation, exegetically attentive and philosophically astute. And if I had to put my finger on like one kind of quote from the book that I think captures a little bit of the spirit of what you're after, I think that might be it in terms of um, rather than trying to like claim different figures for our sides, if we engage with them carefully, what can we learn from them about reading scripture well for today? Um, yeah, so I mean, thought like maybe just if you were to kind of do some synthesis of what you think you've done in the book kind of globally, what would be some of the wisdom that you think comes from uh, this sort of an exercise? Yes, there's a way in which these um, very well worked out stances on creation, and this could apply to, you know, other areas of teaching. They've these are kind of the greats of our Christian history and they spent kind of years or decades on these problems, on these tasks. And so they really are kind of great works, you know. <laughs> In many cases, these are sort of uh, amongst the magnum opi. No, mm -hmm. I don't know how to pluralise that. <laughs> the, the great <laughs> works of these figures. Oprah, yeah. <laughs> My Latin left me. Um, and, and so... The, you know, they are very serious undertakings. Now, with the change of intellectual, you could say even, you know, church circumstances, the system itself as a finished piece uh, has had its day. 
and become obsolete, much as you know our own academic enterprises will. So the model is not the finished scheme as a kind of a prefabricated package. The model is the approach, the hermeneutic, the the tactics adopted. So when Augustine is dealing with uh, the understood astronomy of his day, uh, if we face astronomy now, it will be a very different scene. The mm. model is not uh, the finished product as an artifact. The model is really the attitude and, and the interaction that's undertaken. So both Augustine and Calvin, when they learn about astronomical knowledge, we know that a lot of those ideas had to pass away, but we get to see how far they are willing to go to meet these ideas on the other side, where they feel there's a line that has to be drawn, where they feel there's a kind of a, you could say, a sort of a non-concordist uh, gap that has to be admitted where you know, Calvin says, if you really want to know the details of astronomy, you'll need more than Genesis 1, 14 to 18. You know, so you can go and consult the astronomers. You know, back in his day, astronomer, astrologer, you know, interchangeable terms almost. But um, consult the experts on the heavens if you want to know more. It's not my job to do all that. Hmm. And I don't get those details in Genesis. So you're going to have to go elsewhere for that expertise. But he kind of lets them do their thing. He doesn't deny them any right to go searching for knowledge that's external to the Bible, but he recognises that's not his task. So mm. there's a, there is a division of labour at work. Mm -hmm. And mm. Augustine does something very similar. And there's a famous passage towards the end of uh, book one from memory of his uh, work on creation where he says, uh, look, it's, it's actually kind of embarrassing. I'm paraphrasing here. It's kind of embarrassing to hear Christians um, pontificating on what's true about the natural world when better educated people around them who are outside the church recognize that what they're saying is a load of guff. <laughs> and, and so it just kind of exposes the Christian mm -hmm. cause to ridicule mm -hmm. when Christians are too quick to pontificate on uh, extra biblical ideas right. that they're just not really qualified yet to comment on. And that's why I think it's really valuable that in our churches we have uh, an encouraging environment for people to develop various different kinds of expertise. And then we can kind of consult them and say, oh, okay, you're a, a well-studied biologist, you're a well-studied psychologist, you're a well-studied political scientist. Um, can you come and comment back to us um, where our Christian faith and how our Christian faith meets those fields? Because I don't know enough to go pontificating myself. Mm. Um, if we scare off every expert um, from the church with this sense that as soon as you bring external knowledge to bear on our worldview um, that's forbidden, then we sort of condemn ourselves to be ignorant of those things. Mm. Yeah, no, that's that's really really great, really helpful. Uh, I think I'll, that really resonates with a lot of our our viewers and listeners as well. Um, and it, it, you know, it kind of for me also raises the question again, not that I'm trying to get back to this claiming so-and-so on our team. Like I get, we should move away from that kind of cheap model, but it is, you know, it kind of is worth asking the question of like, it's like the WWJD equivalent of, you know, WWAD, what would Augustine do or what would Calvin do or whatever. Like we, if we're going to take them seriously as thinkers, 
we can't just say that their answer to our questions today would be a regurgitation of whatever they said about something a thousand years ago. Uh, because, I mean, my reading of, of a lot of these figures, I mean, not all, there's obviously there's diversity in the tradition, but many of the people that we laud as kind of these heroes of the faith, defenders of orthodoxy, uh, are really sharp thinkers, really well-educated, um, and drawing on multiple resources uh, of knowledge. Uh, it's it's kind of unfathomable for me to think that if they if you plopped one of them into the 21st century, they would just sort of like shut themselves off in a fundamentalist corridor and not listen to anything else and say, the Bible tells me so, the Bible tells me so. Uh, that That's that's harder for me to, to you know, wrap my mind around. Um, yep. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think... Um that idea that they that guidance they can provide by their example in how far is appropriate to go to sort of meet the worldview of the day is really helpful mm -hmm. so you really can just read your bible alone like it's possible to do this to read your bible alone to ignore all all knowledge you would regard as mainstream knowledge and uh, you know, in a sense, I can I see that possibility at times amongst my students or people around me. And so you can do that. What you do is you condemn yourself to purely having in-house conversations with people who already think like you. You lose any apologetic power because uh, not only can you find no common ground to begin a conversation with someone outside the church, but eventually you can't even speak the same language. You don't know what mm. one another are talking about. And so. Uh, that there's no capacity for growth there if you can't talk to anyone who's not already a convert mm -hmm. and that condemns you to a kind of a little shrinking cluster uh, a, a little kind of ghetto situation and so mm. uh, you know these famous figures recognize that that's why there was engagement with a, with going philosophy of the day uh, they weren't afraid to rebuke it and reprove it but you would find that they're actually still using the terminology of those philosophies or um, mm. they're saying effectively, sometimes implicitly, here's what you can say truly um, in that other field. And then here's where the Lordship of Christ means you can't say those other mm -hmm. things. But mm -hmm. they were in the conversation. They weren't just talking to themselves. It wasn't all inside the shell. They yeah. were in a public conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm. Uh, I, I always try to draw these big kind of meta connections sometimes. I'm kind of a big picture thinker like you uh, as well. I mean, I can get granular, but I like to try to draw these larger connections. So as I was reading the book, I, I picked up on something that you were highlighting, uh, basically kind of a tension. And this is my own description of what I was seeing, but kind of a tension between maybe you could describe it as kind of like a more academic or philosophical approach to Genesis 1. So allegory uh requires kind of an elite education it sort of like presupposes that you've gone through levels of education and so we're talking about like elite mm -hmm. uh readers right that are doing this kind of research the tension between that and maybe what again my words but kind of describing what i was seeing you talking about uh kind of a more like practical pastoral concern to make genesis one intelligible to the common person, if you will, or the every, you know, the everyday person. And I thought that was interesting, kind of like a tension between like the way, you know, some really well-educated church fathers are reading it. And then the pastoral concern, like, hey, this, 
this needs to make sense to everybody. Like how, so, so I was thinking in our own day and age and kind of in the position of being in the guild and being an educator and being versed in, I mean, it's not my area of expertise, but being versed in ancient and Eastern studies and how Genesis one is approached from like modern critical uh, scholarship. I wondered if there's kind of a little bit of a parallel to today where, you know, if you ask scholars of the Old Testament and people that are versed in this stuff, they're likely going to read Genesis 1 in light of other ancient Near Eastern uh, foundation stories. It's just kind yeah. of a natural, well, of course, that's its world. We set it in there. That seems so natural. Like, how could it not be? But then on the other hand, you have kind of the majority of lay readers who haven't spent years and years studying Hebrew and cognate languages and all these cultures uh, and, and their foundation stories. And they have been told there's this kind of other plain sense way of reading the text. It's very literalist uh, way of reading Genesis. And it struck me that there's that, that there's just kind of like that dichotomy uh, still today. And uh, yeah, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about, about mm. that dynamic. Mm. Uh, is it something you come across in your role uh, as a, a Bible teacher in Australia? And how do you, yeah, how do you think about it? How do you approach it with with students and people in church? It's a little bit like a teaching challenge that we have here where we deliver um, multiple levels or multiple streams in the same classroom. You know, hmm. so we, we have this kind of academic admin arrangement where some students are at a 500 level, some six and some 800 level within the same classroom. And you're hmm. trying to kind of allow the 800 level to operate at a more sophisticated level while you're still saying the same words. Now, I actually think a lot of scripture does this. Mm. I think it actually has this kind of bifunctional nature where uh, it's not an accident that it has a surface level that reads more simply and is quite digestible and so forth. And then um, for those who are ready and willing to dig, there's this more complex layer to the story. Um, I'm not a very allegorical thinker. I don't really, I admire Oregon and, and co as uh, kind of big brains and, and church leaders, but I actually, I don't really resonate with that super esoteric way of interpreting. But the way I see this um, more sophisticated level operating in scripture is that it knows that the more there's a kind of a deeper kind of reader who is ready to see deeper kind of things and realize there's more going on in the text than at first glance is obvious. And it's not that they're bringing um, excess complexity or that they're kind of deconstructing it themselves, but there are clues within the text to hmm. um, invite them to go deeper when they're ready. Hmm. Uh, how I think this works in places like Samuel King's is it's possible to maybe say read the stories about Solomon in 1 Kings um, portraying him as a hero um, and then when you read with a little bit more insight and experience you start to realize that another side to Solomon's reign is being communicated that's full of reservation and not not just at the very end but kind of all the way through um, much of the same with uh, King David or even the prophet Samuel himself mm -hmm. and so I think back in Genesis it's possible to see a couple of levels at work uh, hmm. where there's uh, a simpler level for easy digestion for the reader who's ready for that. And then there's a more sophisticated level for that reader. And part of the 
cleverness of the design of scripture is that it's capable of doing both of those things at the one time. So how I think this works out in teaching and preaching and uh, church life is uh, I actually think, I, I don't think biblical scholarship currently is doing this very well of recognizing that we have a responsibility not to bust people's faith in pieces. <laughs> um, a lot of what's written, you know, I'd rather shield my students from than expose them to, although in a sense I'm obliged to let them see everything. But um, a lot of it is really very heedless of the health of a reader's faith, I think, mm. and kind of mm. irresponsible. So uh, I think there is a situation where I should be letting a reader of a certain kind read the Genesis text and see six literal days and be happy with that, and I shouldn't um, burst their bubble. It's not the time, and, and in a way Scripture is doing exactly what it needs to do for them. Mm. Um, but then sometimes you'll run into the person who is already asking the questions. It's not necessarily that someone got in their ear, but they... Uh, they're already asking the questions. They're already detecting clues in the text. Um, you know, maybe it's the heavenly bodies turning up in the middle of the week or something like that. And they're already mm -hmm. saying, oh, hang on a second, how does that work, you know, for a literal reading? In a way, they're ready for you to start to uh, take them on and say, okay, well, um, if, if you want to go the next step, here's how I understand that to look. Hmm. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. I mean, it's so, uh, I think it's pastorally sensitive and, uh, I, I've wrestled with this sometimes in the classroom as well, that I think sometimes being being a Bible scholar or whatever, being in the guild, we sometimes get the impression, maybe because we've learned it from other people even, that our, like, our number one role is to tear down bad assumptions people have right, right away and then so we can build them up. And I do think that all good education involves some disorientation and reorientation. Um, but there, like you said, there is a time and a place for it and being, you know, kind of wise about how we do it, I think is, is really, you know, really important. And I don't know, there's a lot of other things I would want to reorient before I start trying to change the way someone reads Genesis one, as long <laughs> as they're being kind and loving to their neighbor. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and as long as they're recognizing the importance of God's as a sovereign creator and the importance of human image bearers and the network of mm. uh, creation, God's glory and creation, like if they're seeing those big themes, then mm. uh, we're, we're at least in a good place. We can we can have our our different disagreements from there. So yeah, I, I think the key thing with so I agree with the kind of uh, the tearing down and building up or that there's um, other metaphors you could use. I, I think of it sometimes as students coming in. Uh, my last year or so of high schooling involved some engineering. Now it's a pretty low level of study, but I remembered some things about how you process, you know, iron to make steel and so forth. And I'm very conscious, you know, to, to make a nice tough tool, you, know, you, you take your steel and you need to, you know, heat it and then quench it and then retemper it, you know. And so often our students come like untempered steel, yeah. you know, hard but brittle and ready to break if the challenge gets too tough. And, that, and the, the heating and the quenching and the reheating is uncomfortable, but what you ultimately produce hopefully is a, a more resilient, tough but not brittle sort of product. Mm. Um, 
I think a clear watershed there with our way of teaching is I think it's a danger sign if we come across as if we despise the text. Mm-hmm. Now, an awful lot of biblical scholarship has mm-hmm. an air of derision for mm-hmm. the biblical text. Mm-hmm. I challenge anyone to go check for themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so even when we are dismantling things that we think can't last in a student or a, a church listener's viewpoint, um, it should always be clear that we actually love and respect the text mm. and that we love and respect the author of the text. Mm-hmm. When it starts to sound as if uh, the text is a hindrance to civilization that just needs uh, dismantling and removal, mm-hmm. um, well, I don't think we have much to offer inside the church anymore. And we also will probably find ourselves dispelling the very audience that pays our income. Mm. Yeah, well, that's true too. the practical nature of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think also for me, the the real clincher on that whole point is that um, I actually think that the more diverse our student bodies become, uh, the more diverse our faculties become, the less uh, Mm. sustainable that kind of an approach is, because that 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 type of approach that you're describing really actually has roots in the modern European academy uh, in an attempt to um kind of just shake the modern world free of the suspicions of the christian faith i mean that's really the like the historical roots of that way of reading the bible obviously you can go back and find ancient skeptics and everything but to have a a discipline that has that like entrenched in it um you know it's not a neutral historical description there there is interest in doing that for sure um but there's also interest in doing historical description to free us of uh the, the text. So yeah, I, I get, I get what you're saying there. Um, and, and full disclosure, I, I love also introducing students to uh, the hermeneutics of suspicion, because I think it can be um, helpful if done ultimately from a place of trust, a helpful kind of guide to asking critical questions and not just of the text, but of like interpreters of the text and our, of ourselves. And so uh, I think that can be good, but yeah, it's it's a balancing act, right? And, and we have to care for the people that were, you know, that that are in our classrooms. Um, I I'd love to kind of get your take on this as well. Like, if you were, obviously, this is not what the book is about, but I, I suspect you have formed thoughts on this. <laughs> what would a good reading of Genesis one look like today? Like, how would you, you know, how would you set that out and when it comes to like that temptation for concordism of trying to align what's being described here with the world as such, you know, like, so in some sense, I mean, I think most people are careful enough to say, yeah, it's not a science textbook or whatever, but they may still want to say, this is a, you know, describing exactly what we, you know, how God did it. and, 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 and so, um, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on that as a reading strategy? Is it is it is it wise? Is it sustainable? Are, are there clues in the text, historical, generic, and otherwise that that maybe should lead us to not allegorical exegesis, but uh, you know some other mm. kind of a, a, an approach, right? I mean, I'm thinking about even somebody like Philo who is inter- interpreting it allegorically. Philo doesn't sit down and say, well, actually, there's two 
like a modern scholar, there's two different creation accounts put side by side. He doesn't do that, but he is re re recognizing many of the textual cues that lead modern scholars to those conclusions. Uh, he just has a different way of doing it. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of just mm. how we should read the text and should we be looking for a concordance view or is there, uh, uh, is there good warrant for reading it otherwise? Mm. Yeah, I think um, some of the study that came out of my PhD and went into my first book, The Days of Creation, uh, which uh, that book allowed me to explore figures that weren't necessarily prominent in these current debates, right? So it was actually uh, kind of broader and brought in more marginal sort of figures. Um, it, it introduced me more deeply to the history of science and the growth of sort of the hard sciences like geology. And it became clear, you know, that a lot of those early scientists were Christians and churchmen to, to different degrees, and they were trying every option, every concordist option that was there, they would kind of try. And um, the outcome for my thinking was to see that the main concordist possibilities for a text like Genesis 1 had really been kind of thrashed out and tested as, as well as they could be tested. And there was really no good solution, I don't think. And it kind of proved to me, um, it, it, took, it took me in a fairly non-concordist direction where mm -hmm. I kind of let Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth stand there in their place and interpret them, I guess, you know, primarily from a literary point of view and then leading in a theological direction uh, rather than trying to integrate them with history. That, they have a chronological frame, but they're not operating the way history operates in our world. Mm -hmm. And particularly, you know, once you go back into um, sort of the deep past, even history in our terms doesn't even work really quite quite like history, you know, in um, kind of, uh, you know, Paleolithic times and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. geological past. It doesn't really work the same way. It's not history in, in terms of human events. Um, so uh, I don't... I look for contact points historically when I'm when I'm in the narrative of kings, right? I don't really mm -hmm. look. I don't look for contact mm -hmm. points when I'm in the first chapters of Genesis. Mm -hmm. I, do, I don't think that they work like that mm -hmm. because there is um, too much of the um, archetypal going on. You know, maybe archetypal mm -hmm. is one of those words that we can use. Mm -hmm. And so, to express creation in a way that was going to be comprehensible for Human readers across you know, 4,000 years of history or whatever we're in so mm. far with that text um, or less, uh, across all cultures and all around the world, in all different circumstances, it was going to have to be something very special. Mm. And it couldn't be anchored to the scientific understanding or knowledge or the f philosophical framework of any one generation uh, for fear of quickly becoming obsolete. And so mm -hmm. it's this you know, pictorial, archetypal, uh, anthropomorphic representation of creation in terms of a human working week or, uh, you know, an encounter in a garden. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, it's versatile by virtue of being so symbolic and archetypal. Hmm. And so for that reason, um, as much as I'm quite a historical thinker and a kind of a, I love thinking about the physical cosmos and the origins of the earth and its crust and geology and astronomy. I love th to think about those things, but I think we tend to um, misuse the early texts of Genesis by trying to get the details to align. Mm -hmm. And if we think mm -hmm. we've done it in one generation, it sort of proves that we haven't in the next as as the moving target of natural knowledge carries yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing I've thought about a lot is that if there if there was going to be a concordist approach, um, what would that even look like? Because our understanding of the cosmos continues to shift so rapidly. And what's to say in 200, 300, 500, however long, uh, many years that our understanding of the cosmos won't radically change again. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very possible that uh, they're going to look back and. Those, you know, <laughs> those Philistines back in the, you know, 2023 thought this and, you know, and so, yeah, that that totally makes sense to me. Do you also see um, ways in which these early chapters are kind of swimming in the same cultural streams as the uh, uh, other ancient Near Eastern cultures? So kind of seeking to answer some of the same questions if we're thinking about kind of the. Augustine's concept of accommodation, we could say that mm. uh, these these texts are really trying to address the same same sort of foundational questions that we would find in um, some other ancient Near Eastern creation texts. Yeah, so I think it's uh, really relevant to inform ourselves about ancient Near East backgrounds. Um, I think it's, own, it's, it's almost a statement of the obvious to say that biblical texts are responding uh, to the ideas, the theologies of their day. Because how could they not be, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, because they're not just an in-house conversation, like the kind of conversation we're trying to warn against. Um, and so, you know, books like John Walton's putting out at the moment, you know, uh, we need to read those, and there are plenty of alternatives as well. We need to read those to discover what those texts are like. And we, those scholars who do that are doing us a service because, you know, most of us aren't going to, start to read cuneiform, um, you know, after a short course and go and do it, all that work for ourselves. So that's why scholarship does what it does. Mm. Um, so I like to encourage my students to think about what's cultural about the text and then what's countercultural. And so mm. essentially to answer either question, you've got to learn about the, the going cultural matrix uh, and then not make the mistake to think that uh, the biblical writers going to just sort of hop in the queue and do as they're told and think everything that the ancient world thinks. Um, so we're ready for what's going to be cultural. And, you know, so many Old Testament things have analogues outside Israel in the ancient world, you know, sacrifice and circumcision and you name it. Mm -hmm. um, but then noticing the things where um, the biblical witness is sort of proving unique or standing out from the crowd you know, in it, maybe in its monotheism or, in, you know, early in Genesis there, that creation is not through conflict between gods, but there's mm -hmm. sort of the will of a single God that's exercised without opposition um, against things like Gnosticism later on, you know, disparaging mm -hmm. the material world, wanting to escape to a spiritual world, that the physical world was intentional and it was good. And mm -hmm. though it's capable of distortion, it's uh, in its original conception, uh, it's good even though it's perishable. 
Mm. Um, so there are these basic theological claims that are really quite clear in the text that every, you know, uh, a populated and teeming world is better than an empty and lifeless world. And uh, the world is made so it would be amenable to human life as well as, you know, animal life. Um, mm. And it was, there was plenty there for mm -hmm. us and for animals to live on. You know, it was um, a world, it's a world that provides for life. Mm -hmm. And so I think Genesis 1 sort of pictures our planet the way I think we would see it if we were to be on an intergalactic quest from elsewhere in the Milky Way galaxy looking for a planet suitable for life and just seeing 10,000 planets that were hostile to life. And then if you finally came across planet Earth, even from a distance, you'd start to realise, you know, wow, this is like paradise. This is, this is the planet we've been looking for all these centuries, the mm. one that really is life-friendly and it's been mm. designed that way. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate you, um, not just your your scholarship, which is fantastic. I encourage everybody, Recruiting the Ancients for the Creation Debate, really excellent book. Um, if you're the type of person, too, that just kind of like loves church history and kind of digging in with ancient thinkers, you're going to love this book. There's a lot of engagement with primary sources. You'll probably get a thousand ideas of other resources you might want to read within the tradition. Uh, so it's a really fun kind of walk through. Um, so really appreciate your scholarship, of course, but also just um, your openness, your pastoral heart, your desire to um, be faithful to God's word. And uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for your time and for sharing with our audience. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Max. Yeah, thanks. You've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you. 